no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Ralph, you ever just have one of those days? I, uh, no. Yes, no. I, <laughs> those days are like every day. Yeah. It's it's the uh, it's the gravity turning your toast face down day. Yes. When yeah. it falls. Yeah. I was struggling to get here on time, and it's just like one of those movies where because the the objective is to get something done perfect and quick everything falls apart and so driving here i got i got stuck behind a dump truck on a major road i nearly got into a car wreck at an intersection trying to dodge college students i i started walking towards the building with my uh my my parking card uh which needed to be hung from the mirror this is uh, you know uh, a, a whole host of calamities Hilarity ensues. I, you know, I would recommend that what you might want to do is think about Kenneth Burke's definition of man. See, I got you there. I see, I see that look on your face, <laughs> that deer in the headlights look. So, so Kenneth Burke, who's this amazing uh, rhetorician, um, who uh, was born in 1897, died in 1993. I have lots of Kenneth Burke stories. <laughs> I could fill up this entire episode with Kenneth Burke stories, actually. But his work is amazing. He was an autodidact. He taught himself everything. And he's mostly influential in the field of rhetoric because he came up with all these ways of thinking about language and the use of it and everything that were incredible. He came up with this notion of dramatism which is a way you can analyze a situation by looking at the act and the actor and the action and the intention and all of that. So, but, and you're going to know why I'm bringing this up because his definition of man, and you'll have to go parentheses, SIC, close parentheses, because (laughs) he was writing at the the time when we were not using all inclusive pronouns. So, so, uh, so man or man or woman is the symbol using symbol-making, symbol-misusing animal, inventor of the negative or moralized by the negative, separated from his or her natural condition by instruments of his or her own making, goaded by the spirit of hierarchy or moved by the sense of order, and rotten with perfection. And it's the last part that I think is the most relevant part for you. It's the rotten with perfection. It's like thinking that you're going to be able to do anything perfectly is it's it's a human obsession yes. actually particularly in in our culture um so it's like an interesting idea because on the other hand it's sort of like there i remember reading this about um border culture um there was an anthropologist who studied the culture that was sort of partly texas partly mexico back when the border was much more fluid and in a lot of those communities she writes she writes about uh the person who wrote the book writes about perfection and talks about how in that in 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 the in that culture in that border culture they really didn't care about perfection they just wanted things to work right <laughs> So, yeah. so it's like the difference between um, making something perfect and making something do what it's supposed to do, yeah. and and the do what it's supposed to do becomes, I think, operative. Yes, and yeah. then you can. Yeah. yeah. So two comments. First, I realize that my entire bad day is 
I guess I have to say a product of hashtag first world problems, which I don't really like because it seems to be third world problems too. But basically, uh, I was in my car that I can afford behind a a truck that literally picks up our trash. Yeah. Um. On, only to uh, come to the building holding my parking card that I paid three hundred dollars for at the beginning of the year. So, um, not not a lot of not a lot there. Um. The other thought that I had. Uh, was that this this comes up a lot in my class. So I teach a lot of uh, computer um, courses in which you're doing graphic design or video or audio. And a lot of my students have never uh, used a computer as a production tool, and it's really just a consumption tool. And often what I'll see around this time of the semester, which is usually at the end of the first design project, is I will have a student that turns in something, and they will say, uh, well, you know, it's not that good. I'm a perfectionist. And so I know that it is, it's it's not that good, itse- you know, itself. Um, and I always tell them, well, you know, if you would have, you know, if I would have came to a dance class and tried to perform for the first time, like, I can't expect that I'm going to be as good as someone who's, who's danced for, for 10 years or, you know, if, if I was working out in a gym for the first time or playing a new sport, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we have, you have to really think about that. Uh, something like this is not just memorizing vocab words and taking a test, but perform, you know, it, it, to, to the, to the point of which some of the work is performative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can't expect to, to, to be perfect yeah. in, in everything that you do forever. Yeah. There's, and there's also kind of a judgment call that has to do with like synchronicity and timing. Um, if you, if you become musical obsessive, for example, and you start listening to, you know, say a, a guitar solo break in the middle of a song and you listen to live versions of it and everything like that. And then there's like this one version that you hear and you go, oh my God, that is the most amazing mm. version of that. And, you know, it just, it just stands outside and it comes from really weird places and really weird circumstances, but it's just like the person and the, and the backup band. And this happens in jazz all the time with people who are really good as are able, but there's, there's sort of like no idea of perfection in, yeah. in jazz and there's no idea of perfection in soloing like that. You just keep on trying to change and, and respond to the circumstance that you're in. Yeah. So there's a, there's a video that I often show pretty famous uh, video that you can find on YouTube and I can link to it in the show notes, but it's from an interview with Ira glass uh, from this American life. And he's talking about how uh, he, he feels like within the, in the last several years, our taste has become really good, right? Like we have a high taste for what we want. Um, but obviously we can't perform to the, to our taste a lot of times when we, when we take a first crack at something. Um, but we, we, we have the ability to recognize how far we have to go to get to that. And it, uh, the, the point of his you know, short little a uh, brief comment is that well, you have to build a large body of work to really get to a point where you can meet your taste. And it just, it just requires to doing something over and over and mm-hmm. over again. So he sounds like he's doing a little bit of the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar, similar concept. I mean, you just can't expect to get somewhere yeah. um, immediately. That's what, what's encouraging about that 10,000 hour thing is it's like you can think to yourself, yeah, at some point the Beatles weren't very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, 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 that it took a certain amount of, uh, and I don't know how that translates into other musical forms, whether you actually have to do 10,000 hours of practice before you're John Coltrane, but, you know, yeah. something comparable like that. I mean, we're, we're on our 18-ish, 19-ish of media and then the world, so we, <laughs> we're... We're only nine thousand and uh, yeah, we'll get there. Hours yeah. short, right? You're right. Yeah, tune into episode ten thousand. <laughs> you will be amazed at how flawlessly it's executed. It'll it'll be like a blip for it. It'll just change the way you live. 
<laughs> it's like yeah if the end of the world still hasn't come by episode 10,000 it's sort of like dipping dots in the you know the ice cream of the future it just, <laughs> just uh, <laughs> and we'll have definitely picked the wrong title for the show right yeah yeah so media, it would, we, we would have to change it to media and the endless continuation of the banality <laughs> that is the world or something like that but you know I, you know once again I'm always overjoyed that we live in a time when all sorts of miraculous things are happening all around us that's that right we just don't realize they're miracles until you go, wow, that was messed up. And then you kind of go back and look at it. Yeah. So, um, you know, it occurs to me also, I think, and I'm going to make a promise for a future episode. I think we should do a future episode on design thinking. Yeah. So I think design thinking is a really interesting concept. Yes. And, and definitely worth talking about. I'd be, I'd be happy to talk about it, um, mostly because there's there's starting to be a lot of arguments on both sides of the issue, too. Mm-hmm. And, and some people who think it's a little bit too uh, fast and, and negligent and others who think it's a really great way to to boost the creative process. And, you know, I, I seem to I, I fall in the camp that you know, anything that's a that's a process is worth probably pursuing and, and realizing that um, it's not necessarily has to has to be something that uh, dictates everything that you do. But yeah, I'd love to talk about something. Yeah, that. I'm intrigued because I think part of the idea is that design involves having some idea what you're going to do at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. And if I know what I'm going to be doing after the end of this podcast recording, I'll have won today. It's just <laughs> it's just That's that right. hard to know. I'm just barely happy I'm here, as I've previously stated. Yeah, it's and there's just like yeah, too much going on. Well, I'm glad that you vanquished the truck and got yep. the parking pass problem settled. I've been also recently been being attacked by rocks that are being thrown up by trucks like that mm. on, on expressways, causing little dings in the window that you have to get repaired. So yeah. well, Let's a, jump in. Where should we start t- uh, today? Well, there's lots of possibilities. I thought first we could fess up that uh, we are, in fact, crisis actors, <laughs> that we've been hired by media organizations, and, and we've actually been recording every podcast in existence. Um, as part of our crisis actor pay, we get paid an enormous amount. Okay, this is all not true, but uh, but I thought crisis actors was a really interesting thing to talk about because it's sort of the latest conspiracy theory. Uh, I don't know how much we've talked about conspiracy theories. Probably a little bit here and there because bit, yeah. they're 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 sprinkled around. But I, I was just going to recommend for for anybody who's interested. Um, that that thinking about how conspiracy theories work is kind of an amazing thing because you realize sort of how short-circuiting thinking can become about uh, assertions of, of truth and fact and things like that and how you end up in these battles with people who are, you know, they're, they're basically their frame of reference is going to suggest anything that you offer them that disagrees with the fundamental way they think the world works is what they want you to think, right? It's being, it's yourself being used against you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there was the tragedy at Parkland that um, that we've all heard about, talked about, and the discussions about what to do about it are in the midst of going on. And in the middle of all that, um, several of the students, because this is a um, student. Uh, led movement, which actually reminds me of one other thing, because I, uh, uh, I was thinking about the incredible uh, um, bravery of students who are willing to do this. And they, they seem kind of, you know, I mean, they're going to be like other people. They're going to be flawed. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to find out one of them did something bad, right? And it's going to destroy the reputation or something like that. But, but I will also remember the moment where uh, there was a lot of call on Twitter for Emma Gonzalez to have more followers than the NRA. Oh, wow. <laughs> And I looked, and and she was like almost there. So I followed her, and then when it reloaded, the number was way over what the NRA's number of followers were. Now that could mean two things, and this is one of those things about media we have to be careful. Could mean that 
people who are interested in the NRA don't care about Twitter and pay no attention right. to it, right? Um, but it also means, I think, that people are very interested in, in, in supporting these students and the things that they're trying to do. And, you know, of course, one of the things that was a side effect of this is the, the abuse that they've taken, including being accused of being crisis actors. And crisis actors are uh, supposedly this group of, I guess they're kind of like a little mime troupe or something like that, who goes around the country. They're paid probably by the people who pay for the black helicopters and all that sort of thing, according to the conspiracy theory. And what they're supposed to do is go to places and, and make up pretend that some tragedy has happened, act like they're hurt and wounded, and then they move on to the next one. Um, so as I was looking to see, you know, sort of where, where the location of this conspiracy theory has kind of grown and found its place, because there actually are crisis actors. Yeah. They are a real thing, too. So, in fact, if you've been in a fire drill, you were a crisis actor, because yeah, yeah. that's essentially what crisis actors do, is they they, they do stuff like that. Uh, but the conspiracy theory has them as being behind all of these, like, really nefarious reactions to to things. So, you know, at this point, it's once again, they're trying to make every, trying to take everybody's guns away. That's what they are, is they're hired to do that. Um, and, of course, there's no support for it. There, there are places online where you can find pictures of, uh, like, they'll have pictures of uh, people who were crying at Sandy Hook, and people who were crying at Lakeland, people who were crying at the Pulse shooting, and it's like a, a girl with long hair. And they'll be like, see, it's the same person. And uh, so uh, if you go on Snopes, one of my favorite places to spend all my spare time, you'll find that they have an explanation of one of these where they have mentioned that of the five pictures they put together, you know, four of the five people were identified by name. Um, so these are um, the, the sorts of things that – so and my, part of my reason for bringing it up is I think it's really interesting to see how these things roll out, to try to track – where does it come from? What what kind of definition does the meaning have? How is it meaningful? I don't think it's going to end up meaningful in the long run in terms of what's happening with the shooting. I don't think it's something that's going to um, – although there will always be remnants of it. There are still people who uh, do things to the parents of the kids that were killed at Sandy Hook that's completely reprehensible to do to people who have lost their children. Um, and I think there will be a little bit of that here, but I don't think it's going to be a major thing. But the idea that the that these conspiratorial ideas come into existence and proliferate and everything like that, I think, is is really important. And to be very suspicious of things when it's um, when it's suggesting that there's some agent that's behind the scenes pulling strings. Yeah, right? yeah. I think one thing um, that I come to think about is uh, we know we all know about the recent indictment on Russia uh, and talking about sort of how that they rolled out a lot of the attacks that have happened uh, within our recent political elections. And one of the comments that you heard a lot was uh, this was well executed. This is well thought out, and there were a lot of people involved. There was a comment that then candidate Trump made during. Uh, one of the debates about, you know, we don't know who it could be. It could be, I, what was it, a, a fat person behind a, a computer? 400-pound person yeah, yeah. on their bed. Right, yeah. right. And it's clearly not that. Um, this is A lot of what is happening is highly sophisticated. And we're not saying that, that Parkland was that, but but some of the things that are happening do, do have that as well. Um, one thing that it reminds me of was at the, the most recent Adobe conference, which I'm sure you follow very closely like I do. I, uh, I do. That's yeah. how I spend my first hour of every morning. <laughs> 
<laughs> what, what, what people are saying what's, what's about the, the Adobe. latest uh, thing that Adobe is releasing? But I just I like wake up and I I shout the word Max, <laughs> and then it starts. Adobe. <laughs> um, there is a a new uh, what, they, what they call Project Cloak. It's a new feature in the, in one of Adobe softwares in which it allows you to remove objects from video. Um, and I think the way, the role that technology is going to be able to play in being able to create a lot of the types of images that you're talking about, right? We're, we're very well aware of what's happening or taking place with Photoshop. Uh, you might have read recently that there's been a proliferation of um, uh, photos that have been uh, artificially intelligently generated to put the faces of celebrities on nude bodies. Um, and these, these technologies are not only getting more sophisticated to look realistic, but obviously pro- proliferate at a much larger uh, rate because they can be uh, computer generated as well. And this is where it gets really concerning to think about the way in which a conspiracy theory can disseminate across um, uh, across a, a, a society um, when uh, it doesn't take a lot to put to put something like that together. And as we've stated, I think multiple times or multiple episodes, you know, truth is something in which we all construct ourselves. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's a it's a mutually constructed thing um, that we all you know ought to pay attention to. And the other thing that that is connected to that is being able to sort of stick with it for long enough to see how it how these things play themselves out. Um, and uh, you know, just as one perspective on it, um, I've spent a lot of time uh, in in. For, been fortunate to be able to compare the way that different kinds of media organizations approach stories. And there are some media organizations that are very hesitant to let, to actually roll a story out until they've confirmed it. Yeah. And others that are willing to sort of like go with what, what happens fairly quickly. And, you know, live coverage, something that, that people in audiences for that kind of coverage need to keep up with is, you know, the story is evolving, right? And then it's a question of, does the news organization um, trust their audience to be able to follow it as it as it rolls out you know so in other words can you hear them say about sandy hook they thought they saw somebody run into the woods and then a half hour later they go oh that didn't happen right they correct the story um and that's you know it's sort of like the space between those is where the conspiracy theory fits sure that's that's where someone goes whatever happened to the mysterious man who ran into the woods right and you know he was he was non-existent so for example the 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 cnn story while it was a, a story connected to cnn which had to do with that one of the kids from lakeland was being scripted right by cnn right. and um so you know he was on tucker carlson and they were talking about this and and uh, this was the this is the hollywood reporter version of the story cnn is claiming glenn hab father of the 17 year old florida school shooting hero colton hab sent doctored copies of a producer's email to fox news and HuffPost in an effort to make it look like the news outlet was scripting its own town hall meeting basically what happened was they talked to the student and got an idea of what questions he was interested in got him to write them up and he had kind of this thing that was more or less like a speech and cnn wanted it to be a town hall questions and answers rather than people you know kind of going on and on so they said well why don't you do this question and it was one of the questions that the kid had submitted but then when the dad sent the information to cnn or to uh, tucker carlson and huffpost about it he eliminated identifying that the question cnn asked about was from the kid's original list of questions right so uh and and that came out later and tucker carlson did a retraction so that's the trick is like when something like that happens if it sounds conspiratorial just be a little patient and see if actually it turns out to be not 
quite as as nefarious as you're led to believe it is. And when there's a correction later to make sure that's part of your kind of historical memory about these things when they happen. Well, and it makes it harder when we live in a world of aggregation and not where we're reading something from the initial source. Right. Um, Because if you see the article that comes out uh, making this claim. Uh, for whatever reason, through a feed, because that's something someone wants to, wants to share. And if your only source of media is that same feed, well, you don't know if that original poster wants to also issue his own correction or her own correction by 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 posting the new one. And so I think it also speaks to a lot. You know, we have to be very careful about reading things only within the the river of aggregation, but also recognizing that um, the the place it's likely going to. Uh, to issue a correction is going to be that original source, right? Yeah. And so, well, and I, I actually, res- I, yeah, I respect that Tucker Carlson said we yeah. were wrong, we were yeah. misled. Sean Hannity did too. So. Yeah, and so that's something you yeah. have to do, and then not cut immediately to an auto crash, right? right. <laughs> but actually, right. actually continue to talk about that's the right. issue so the yeah. people understand the consequence of it, and also that all media organizations make mistakes. It's yeah. just in the nature of human activity, the imperfectibility of human action, yeah. and and I. Not not to bring it up, but it's I think I I have to I can't resist it, which is this is often a criticism that the president has has made, um, and it, you know at times when uh, journalists from organizations, particularly ones that cover him in a critical manner, have ma- have issued corrections and said that they've originally got something wrong, um, he's 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 highlighted that as a bad thing of look that this is an example of fake news, and it's the, the exact opposite. Um, it's the best example of what you know what journalism ethics looks like and what you should do as a as as a strong media organization is mm-hmm. when you do have something wrong, uh, ad- admit it and issue the correction. Yeah, so. I think I, I think that's kind of critical. I actually have an admission of my own to make of something that I was talking about in class that's perfectly about this because right. because we have learned from uh, wonderful people like Mike Caulfield that we should never read one story and go, oh, this is cool, and then tell someone about it, right? And so there I am, and this is the headline that I see. Well, this is a version of the headline. This is actually, uh, this is Cory Doctorow's version, and it goes back to a New York Times article. But his headline in Boing Boing read, 25 years ago, a mutant American crayfish turned to asexual reproduction with all of Europe's lakes are filling up with its clones. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I saw this story and I thought, you know, because I think, I don't know if there's something wrong with me, but I think that the idea of, you know, spontaneous cloning uh, by animals is kind of amazing. It's kind of a cool thing. Um, yeah, maybe it's a future Black Mirror episode. I mean, who knows if that's going to be the case. There's a couple of things. All right, so basically the marbled crayfish is a mutant slow crayfish, slaw, um, slew, S-L-O-U-G-H. Okay. That's a body of water. I grew up by one. Um, it's an American species, and it was actually sold in 1995 to Germans as a Texas crayfish, so it was a pet. Uh. And then the alligator thing happened, right? They got flushed, they got away, whatever, they started reproducing. And they were able to do it without, you know, boys and girls playing together. They shifted to asexual reproduction or as the, the, the term I was trying to dig out because I think it's such a cool word, parthenogenesis. <laughs> um, most organisms use asexual reproduction as invertebrates. Several species of vertebrate animals do make use of it. Some, like copperhead snakes, can reproduce asexually as an alternative to their typical sexual reproduction through a process called parthenogenesis, literally virgin birth. There you go. Uh, copperhead females can give birth to live young without having been inseminated by a male, even when males are available. Um, you know, which actually... Again, once again, points to, uh, underscores the fact that the perfect human being is female, and that males are aberrant, mutant versions of human beings, and so that's part of it too. But what I really like about the crayfish story is 
you know, it, since it was reimported from Texas back into Europe, it's kind of like the reversal of the whole colonial yeah. period, right? The, the the idea that it was a, sort of like a post-colonial return of of this the species, and and it's spreading itself right now through um, Ukraine, Czech Republic, Hungary, Croatia, Japan, and Madagascar. And they're just able to they're able to lay an amazing amount of eggs and make more crayfish. And uh, as uh, as Cory Doctorow points out in the story, nobody has yet determined whether they're delicious. No, oh, but we thank you. Would hope that's the next step because they are an essential ingredient in crawfish etouffee, one of my favorite dishes. That's fun. So yeah, I feel like we should uh, we should have a, like an article a week in which we talk about the way that we've. Tried to tried to look at the sources of it and, and come up with where the data had come from, or if this mm-hmm. was a true story or not. Well, because... well, there's now now, and that's the failing that I did because when I so I read the story and I brought up it in class and I just brought it up and I said, "Isn't that interesting?" and and then. And then the little thing inside my head that always wants to find fault in all that yeah. I do goes, you know, you didn't verify that yeah. anywhere. You didn't look to see if anybody else has published this story. This was before the Cory Doctorow version uh, and Boing Boing. It was, it had shown up somewhere else. And I don't even remember the original first place I saw it. But I realized that I hadn't checked and yeah. I needed to do that. And fortunately, I didn't have to make a correction. I was able to go into my class the next day and say, oh, I checked. And that is a real thing. I didn't just make up that thing about asexual reproduction in crayfish. That is real. But uh, <laughs> but but it was a reminder that all of us need to be careful about checking to make sure that the stuff we think we know, we actually really know. Yeah. It's just a humbling moment. Um, I have a little bit on, well, just a comment that I wanted to make about the Parkland and, and get your reaction to this too. Okay. So um, from a media perspective, I found myself over the last week really heavily withdrawing from social media. I'm going to put a hot take out there and say that social media is not the best place for us to be debating um, uh, these these topics, or that at least what I've seen play out has, has rarely been constructive. And that a lot of what I see happen on both sides of the issue are that people get to uh, you know, heated levels in the spectrum that that are often unnecessary, and likely if they would to be able to have a face to face debate with whoever they're talking to, would go over much more rationally, um, and they'd be able to you know uh, to to come to a little bit more of a compromise. And I haven't seen that has been a big issue. Um, what I have done over the last couple of days uh, is try to have a discussion within my class, not about regulation, but literally about what we what we should we do in the situation in which there's an active shooter on campus. Because what I've found is that when, and tell me you can, uh, you know, tell me if you think this is right or wrong, but as I found is when issues like this get politicized, um, it's really, I've I found it really hard to bring it into a classroom setting without getting into that specific debate of the issue, right? And it covers up a, a genuine conversation that I think is probably worth having with students. Um, and this was really, really hard for me to do. And I was gritting my teeth sort of going through it both times that I did it yesterday, where I basically, you know, I give my normal introduction to class, but then sort of went through, hey, you know, just based off of recent events, I think it's worth having this conversation uh, and opening up for questions and comments if you have it. But I want to walk you through, you know, as a faculty who's seen some training on active shooters, sort of what it what you know, what you should be thinking and at least get students um, not in a in a mindset to be completely thinking about it all the time, but at least go walk through the motions of if something was happening, you know, in this physical space, what 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 should be my first move? Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I 
prefaced all of it with saying, I hate that we have to be having this conversation. And I don't think as a society we're in a place where we should be, but we, but the reality is we need to face it and at least be talking about it as, you know, a large institution that is uh, very accessible to the public. So, so how do they react to talking about this? Kind of quietly. I mean, I got, mm-hmm. I got, I got some, I got, got some positive nods where I, I did ask students, have you talked about this in any other classes? And my, the, the overall response was, um, no, mm-hmm. uh, no one had mentioned, you know, no one had told me that they had talked about it in any other class itself. Um, you know, and it's, it's obviously not the, the, the type of topic that I want to talk about. And I don't, I don't want that to sort of get, uh, you know, bring itself into the classroom, but the reality is it, it you know, until something changes, I think that, it, that, uh, any, any really large gathering of people is going to be a target and so it's 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 worth thinking about itself yeah i think um, yeah so. I, I mean i would agree with that i think it's probably something where at the very least if you've thought about it beforehand then you know you're not going to be kind of frozen right in the moment you're not going to like just stare and panic and not know what to do um or just be sarcastic about it <laughs> which yeah. is you know yeah. which is an unfortunate thing that happens too and it's been in situations where i've had that response uh, a million years ago when i taught high school i remember we had a bomb threat and so you know all the students went out and uh, there were a bunch of us in the faculty who were asked to go inside and search and I, I can't say that the way I approached the search, it was effective because, but it probably would have set the bomb off if there was one there because I wasn't really doing it very well. Um, so, uh, and I thought about that and I thought I should probably be a little bit more serious about that and have some kind of a plan in mind, you know, particularly at the time when I was teaching students. This was really before a lot of this, this wave of, of school shootings that's affected us recently has become such a concern. But, I mean, it's just so people don't get stuck, you know, just so that they're not stuck in the moment of not knowing what to do which I think is a, is a good thing. And I'm really sorry that we have to talk about it too or think about it and consider it a possibility, much less some of the things that people are proposing that are um, really odd, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. And if, and if there are listeners out there who have opinions on how to approach this or, or whether or not to approach it in the classroom, I'd love to hear because something that I certainly wrestled with a lot before I came to class, but I felt convicted enough to bring it up and, and felt like it was the conversation that, well, that we needed to have. Yeah, the thing where you started off too, I think it's also an important thing to think about when you're involved in conversations and social media about stuff like that going is this helping or making it worse you know is this making my thinking about it better or is it just making me angry and frustrated and and concerned because i think that the the factor that's buried underneath all that is again we've talked about this a couple times on the podcast before is trust right mm-hmm. um uh, i i know that when i get in when i the more attention i pay to an issue the way it plays out on social media the less inherent trust i have for other people yeah absolutely know? and uh, i and i don't want that comment to um take away from anything the students have done because i do think it's been uh one of the more positive outcomes that has came from the the event itself is that we get to see students um in the spotlight and I always I always feel that I as a as an educator I will stand behind students mm-hmm. I'll, you know most yeah. of the time well and I think that all of us are are happy to see people engaged yeah That's absolutely always an encouraging thing to see um, so well so let me let me shift the topic a little bit and ask you because I did ask you before we started recording if you had done any contributions to Wikipedia and you said you had. So just yes. out of curiosity, what have you done? Very little. So uh-huh. what what I usually do um, as a as a fan of music is I am often interested in 
um, at making additions to uh, a, a band's discography if they put out something that's not listed on there. Um, I like playing with the graph of the shows when members were in were in the act themselves. You know, like it'll show like so and so was vocals from ninety three oh, to yeah. ninety nine, and, and then was the, replaced. The bar graph and, at the bottom, right, and then yeah. came back in. Uh, and I like tweaking those as well, or and adding people that I feel like have been missing okay. or something like that. So what what I'm usually doing to a Wikipedia article, and I, there have been times where I've added. Uh, uh, musician X has announced that a record is coming, you know, is, mm-hmm. is being worked on in the future or something like that. And then linked to the article itself. So, but the, all of my, uh, contributions have been strictly music based, uh, on articles that probably only me and 50 other people are reading. All right. I actually don't know that. I could probably check out the stats because I know that, that is something <laughs> yeah. that I can, I can dig up. Is how many people have actually read the edit that I've made? Well, that was one of, one of the reasons that I brought this up. Is I think it's really curious when, as we're kind of going through life, and a term has a lot of currency, or something happens with a musician or an actor or something like that. How is it affected? Um, you know, how is it? How is the reality that's being fabricated in Wikipedia? How is it advancing as these things pass? Um, so, um, the, so crisis actor, I was looking at the uh, Wikipedia page for crisis actor. And part of the reason I wanted to mention this is because there's these tabs that are at the top and, you know, a lot of people use Wikipedia. It's, it's, it's a resource that I think is really kind of critical to the way our culture works now. Um, but at the top, there are some, um, tabs that I'm sure most people pay no attention to because when I talk about this in class, I say, have you ever clicked on the talk tab? Yeah. And they're like, no. No. You know, it's, yeah. Which, you know, it's sort of like saying to somebody, how does the Google algorithm work? Right. And they go, I just don't care. Yeah. It'll just tell me what the best donut in the world is, and that's all I need to know. Um, <laughs> but but for people who are interested in how this evolves over time, since our reality is made up out of this stuff, um, I think it's really worth looking at how these, you know, how these things are put together, how they're, and and by looking at the, the, so there's the talk tab at the top, which is where people actually discuss what's in the article, and then there's the history. And in the history, you can see all the different versions of the article that have happened over time. And when something becomes enormously controversial, and end up ends up being caught in kind of a, a a war of the attempt to fabricate reality. Then they will, you know, lock out the page so that people cannot change it. Um, but I think it's worth the time to look at these things when you have a chance. If you're um, and to look to see how that history has been altered, how that construction's been changed. One of the things that I think makes makes the the whole social interface really remarkable is this idea of what um, uh, Clay Shirky calls cognitive surplus. The idea that so much of this work is being done in people's spare time. Yeah. And yeah. so it's, and, and we're talking about hours and hours and hours of people putting effort into it. Um, and the product is just kind of really amazing because you can get a you know, thumbnail understanding of something fairly quickly if you, you know, if you, if you, and not just the sort of the definition of it at a particular moment, but also how it got there, how that definition got put together. So like for me, I'm going to be watching the crisis actor page over the short term future and see how it, ends up, you know, sort of being reconstructed. Um, when you go through the history, you can see there are periods where there's a lot of activity. So on the Crisis Actor page, October 2017 was a big time. And then February 2018 is all these recent revisions that have happened to the page. Um, and yeah, this is a lot of minutia, maybe. Um, and sometimes the, the discussions are about 
uh, you know, whether something is a particularly good or well-sourced example, but it's worth having a look at at how it works. And something we never had the chance to do before. All you had when you had, you know, when you had the old print encyclopedias, <laughs> all you could do was see who wrote them, right? So you could open it up and see who all the, the people who were writing the entries were and where they taught usually. Um, but but not a whole lot about how the process worked. Yeah, and, you know. yeah, yeah. I think, I think the talk page is one of the most fascinating things that Wikipedia has that most people really never engage with. Um, a couple comments on both of those. One also factor to, to to be aware when you're reading a Wikipedia page is that 90% of uh, Wikipedia editors are male. Um, and so it has a strong male bias. Um, not, it's not surprising um, there, but the, it is something that there's been a lot of efforts, even here on campus, to get women involved in, in, in more editing. Um, but there's there's the other, the flip side of that is, is, is males just need to be a, a little bit more quiet, um, I would argue as well. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention was it, it made me think about um, just academic publishing in general. And if anyone is familiar with the academic publishing process, um, you su- you submit a draft. Uh, often it is blind reviewed. You don't have an idea of who has done anything with it, and then it magically comes out or doesn't. It gets rejected, right? Um, after a couple of edits, but yeah, it's, yeah it's, magic. That's yeah, how I that's think right. about it when I get the rejection. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a it's a very it's it's also a black hole process for a lot of people. It can be incredibly frustrating, particularly for um, you know a, a a young academic who's trying to figure out exactly how to do this process. And so there's been a lot of thought into how do you make the publishing process be a lot more transparent and the way mm-hmm. that you're talking about being able to see the process and not just the end products can be really, really helpful. Um, another tool that people have started to explore as a publishing platform, uh, and I, I don't think it will it really catch on to this the same level unless it makes a lot of tweaks, but is GitHub. Um, which is also a really good place for versioning. So being able to see um, who exactly made, not only made a change, but also made a request for that change as well. Uh, it's often referred to as a, as a pull request. And so they request a change and then you have the, you know, the ability to accept or decline that change and, and make some comments as to why, why you made it. Um, but I think this is, this is something in which uh, uh, digital publishing really gives us an opportunity to see how, how stories are constructed and how something plays out. I, yeah, I would just encourage people to you know get involved in this. If you have never you know taken the opportunity, and I know that the number of people who have is much smaller than I wish, but um, something that you know everybody has their own expertise. And if you you know are in Wikipedia and you see something that you know isn't incomplete or or uh, wrong or out of date or something like that, you know take the time to. It, it, there's a little bit of a learning curve to learn how to edit, but it's not really that. It's steep. not, and you don't even technically have to log in to do it you can make anonymous edits mm-hmm. so yeah or you know and or you can just let it you know just register and be a person and yeah. go ahead and go in and edit and 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 you know kind of stand by your work there's advantages to doing it both ways but i think you think about it really differently when you make a contribution and then it stays there and you're like oh you know this mm-hmm. is i am now part of this collective process that that is a resource that uh that that is free you know, once you have digital access and does amazing things, which also is related to a question that we talked about in, cl- in a class that I was teaching when we talked about this, which is, you know, what do you do when you get the banner that says, if everybody looking at Wikipedia would <laughs> contribute $2, we, our fundraising would be done for the year. And so I, I asked my students, so how do you react to that? 
And of course, most of them click the little box in the upper right hand corner and make it go away. And um, and and so I and I said, you know, whether you and and my mentioning this is also to suggest that. You know, when that opportunity comes up or anytime you get solicited, particularly for something that's been shot into the digital environment that's got a free price point, if you decide not to contribute, what does that mean in the long run? I think that's the thing to think about. So wherever one gets one's information from, if you, if you are not directly paying for it, um, you know, I struggle with this with the ad blocker yeah. stuff all the time, yeah. you know, is it um, – Am I am I doing something that's actually not going to, in the long run, allow what I benefit from to continue? Yeah, and uh, there are, there are other things that are making it really concerning as well. So as Google and Facebook have basically sucked up all of the revenue in which you could generate from digital advertising, um, I mean, most of what the, it's it's becoming less of a of a source that any other entity that's not Google or Facebook can really make any money off of, and so. Um, the, the, the two ways in which you can really generate money uh, on as a media entity is through either advertising or through subscriptions. And so I think we're going to continue to see subscription um, subscription options rise or premium options rise as as uh, as advertising becomes sort of even a, a less a less uh, optimal place for media companies mm-hmm. to turn. So yeah, one one last cultural observation as we as we kind of round out today's little uh, dance toward the end of time. Uh, in the New York Times, um, was this yesterday? Yeah, no, it's today. This was earlier today. I was very excited to see that the, there's an exhibit that I've, ha- I've been fortunate to see to, twice previously called David Bowie Is. And Are you a Bowie person? Mm-hmm. So uh, there's this exhibit, and I've seen it in two different museums. I saw it in Chicago. I saw it in London. And hmm. uh, it, it, it is not playing at a theater near you, but it is at the it is opening on March 2nd at the um, uh, at the Brooklyn Museum. And it's kind of an amazing exhibit that, uh, you know, for the, I'm saying, I'm going to say things that, so if this is too obvious, just laugh at me, but, um, you know, that David Bowie's career kind of traced out this whole artistic trajectory of adopting different styles and right. different personalities. And so it's kind of a combination of sort of memorabilia and then costumes yeah. and then film and video. And, um, and it's just kind of an amazing to see the, the range of what he did over his career was just kind of amazing. Um, and so if, if you happen to be planning a, a trip to New York in the near future, uh, it's it's an exhibit that's definitely worth seeing. It's because uh, he was really on the cutting edge of culture for such a long time. And it's definitely worth thinking about. So you could read a little bit about it in uh, today's New York Times. Um, and it's called The Bowie You've Never Seen, David Bowie Is, an exhibition that unveils the rock icon's complete artistry, expands and as arrives at its final stop, the city he called home. So There you go. We yeah. will link to that and other articles that we've mentioned. We, we, we got through a lot, I think, in this episode. So we'll make sure those are in the show notes for those who want to catch up on some reading. Ralph, this was enjoyable. It was. And as always, if you're listening and you have any questions, comments, suggestions, disagreements, we'd love to hear from you. By all means, drop us a note. All right. Until next week. 